All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. If you're joining us for the first time today or if you've been gone for a while, uh, we are working our way through the book of Acts. We're going to take a couple of short breaks along the way. And it'll take us, uh, it's going to take us a couple years to do it. Uh, today, we are in chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. Acts chapter 9, 26 through 31. Speaking of Saul, the recent convert, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. You've given us poetry and songs. You've given us narratives like Acts or Genesis, the Gospels. You've given us epistles. All of it, Lord, is designed to teach us who you are and what you have done and how you have made us, what you call us to. In your word, Lord, you teach us, and so we're praying that you would teach us today, not just by way of information, but that you would actually change us, and that we would experience transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you start reading the book of Acts, and you start walking your way through it, uh, eventually you're going to start to see that the church, in its various locations, is growing, it's multiplying, it's increasing. And as soon as you begin to talk about church growth in any church context, you have a couple of different responses, right? Some people hear church growth and they get pumped, they get excited, they love church growth, they love metrics, they like counting, they like all that stuff. And then other people, and this is more in some of our distinct fellowships and tribes, they're like, ah, I don't know about that. They get a little nervous. Church growth sounds manipulative, sounds worldly, we're not about numbers, you know, we don't want to get into all of that. And that response, that more negative response, is usually a response not to church growth, but to the church growth movement, which was started in the 70s. And it really was an attempt to reach as many people with the gospel as possible by way of attracting as many people as possible to our Sunday gatherings. And of course, this movement has various kinds and stripes, uh, but it was fraught with some particular shortcomings. And that's usually what those uh, who are nervous about church growth are responding to. We don't have to get into the church growth movement and the pros and cons of all of that. What we need to do is take a careful look at the book of Acts and understand what the Bible actually has to say about church growth, because it is certainly more than about numbers. It's not just about numbers. It's not just about increasing the size of your fellowship. And we're going to see that today. I want us to see that church growth is, is fundamentally the work of God 
among his people and through his disciples. But here's the takeaway, the one big principle that I want you to hold on to throughout this message, and it is this, that church growth is evidence of Jesus' reign. Now, if that's already making you uncomfortable, I know what side you're on. And you're like, hey, 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 hey. If my church isn't growing, Jesus is still reigning, right? Well, let's just hang on and, and see. Church growth is evidence of Jesus' reign. Now, before we get back into this passage, let me just clarify something here. Let's define this term, church growth. What do I mean by it when I say it? I'm going to define it like this. Church growth is the spiritual development and expanse of the local church by way of conversion and edification. That's fundamentally what I'm talking about. You could say more about it and get deeper. You could answer, uh, add some, some caveats to it, but it is essentially this, the spiritual development and expanse of a local church by way of conversion, people coming to faith in Christ, and edification, people growing in their faith in Christ. And to really unpack this, we're going to see four principles of church growth in this passage. And for the first time in 15 years, my points are alliterated. Now listen, that is an accident. They did not do that on purpose. Alliteration means that there's a lot of uh, parallelism and they all begin with or end with a word uh, that ends in F, faith, fear, and so on. So I didn't do that on purpose so you can make fun of me. Just know I wasn't trying to do that. I don't spend time on that stuff. All right, so first principle. We see it in verse 26. Church growth is challenged by fear. Now this is a good one to start with and I'm glad we see this in this particular account of how Paul was received or not so well received by the church in Jerusalem. Verse 26, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. Right, so listen, Paul was converted on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. He encounters the risen Lord. He is radically changed, born again. He now has faith in the Jesus that he hated. And Jesus says, you're going to keep going to Damascus. So he goes to Damascus. And while there, he preaches. He preaches the gospel. He's, he's evangelizing. He's going to the synagogues. And now he's going to Jerusalem. He goes back to Jerusalem to join the church, to get with the people. And his reputation, of course, precedes him. Paul or Saul has a past. And it's one that everybody knows. It's not a hidden past. Some of y'all are very fortunate to have a past that's long hidden and buried. You don't have to deal with it. Saul does not have that opportunity. He doesn't have that luxury. He comes to the church and people are freaking out because that Saul, he wanted to arrest us. He was for the execution of some of us. He was, he was our nightmare, our boogeyman, we called him, right? He, he is the bad guy. But here he is. And they were, they were doubtful about the whole thing. They didn't believe he was a disciple. They had heard the stories, but they're like, I don't buy it. In other words, they think he's a spy. At least that's what some people say. Uh, spies the wrong way, because spies are kind of covert, and there's Saul. But maybe, maybe and in their mind, they're, they're thinking like, oh, he's playing the game. He's trying to ingratiate himself so he can get as much information as possible. We know that that was his aim when he went to Damascus. He wanted to get all of the information that he could on these Christians so that he could prosecute them. So they are doubtful, dubious about this whole thing. And uh, the church is growing. He's one of the new converts, but they're challenged with this growth by their fear. And church growth is always facing challenges and fears. Because when new people are converted, you know what they bring with them? Baggage. 
baggage because we all have baggage. Listen, (laughs) if you are a member of Redeemer, you got baggage and lots of it. But you're used to your baggage and we're used to each other's baggage because we've been rolling together for a minute. But when someone new comes in, they're bringing their baggage and their baggage might be different than yours. They bring their past. They bring their reputations. They bring their issues. They bring their reputation and we can see people getting uncomfortable, right? Not, not, not so much here at Redeemer, but we see this in churches quite a bit. Somebody comes in and they're known as being a certain way and people get a little uneasy. Why are they here? Well, they say they're here for Jesus, but are they really here for Jesus or do they, do they have alternate motives? When I became a Christian, I had heard the gospel for about a year. I had despaired for my soul for about nine months. And when I finally trusted in Christ, I thought, I can't tell anybody because nobody's going to believe that Joey is now a born-again Christian. They're going to think I'm just trying to get with that blonde girl that was telling me about Jesus, which I was, but that wasn't why I believed in Jesus, right? That's, that had actually had, there were two completely different things. But I thought, they're not going to believe me. So I'm going to go, and I, then ultimately I couldn't hold it in. So I went and I told everybody, I said, listen, I now believe in Jesus. And the church, to their credit, Chapel Street, that's what they're called now, Chapel Street simply opened up their arms and they said, we love you, welcome. They received me despite my reputation, which was rather public, despite my history, despite my baggage, they welcomed me in. It was a beautiful example that showed me early on how we're supposed to receive new converts. Not like they're receiving Saul here in Acts chapter 9. You know what you happen when you start reaching people? You sort of, and when, when your church starts to grow and you're starting to get people that are in, they're coming to worship, but they don't even believe yet, right? They're investigating, they're asking questions, they're seeking, uh, they're, they're figuring things out. They come with their baggage, they come with their issues like we all have, right? And when they bring in their philosophies and their ideas, that's why local churches throughout scripture and up to today, we face the, this, this responsibility of answering questions of giving an, uh, uh, an answer for the hope that we have, we have to dispel false notions. We have to counter false doctrines and teachings. This is why, listen, if you don't have weird issues in your church, if you, if you don't have problematic issues, if you're not having growing pains that are uncomfortable, well, you're, it's probably a sign that you're not growing. But when you have some you know, some, some moral issues and some doctrinal issues that are starting to creep up in the church, that is oftentimes the byproduct of reaching new people because they bring their baggage. Well, here comes Saul. He's got his baggage. He's got his reputation. And this is a challenge. It creates fear. Also, another fear that we face when the church begins to grow is that it, it changes culturally, right? The, 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 the local churches change culturally as they grow, not just numerically. Of course, that's an easy one to see. As churches grow, things become more complex. And we've had people that were with us in the early days of Redeemer when there were 40 adults and 20 kids. And as soon as we got to about 150, I remember a couple going, we don't really like it anymore. It it's, doesn't feel the same. And I was very sympathetic. I understand, yeah, things, things change, right? And it's still a small church, right? Or, a, or an average-sized church, maybe. But yeah, things change. But I don't even just mean that. I mean, as we grow in edification, as, as churches mature, the culture begins to change and mature along the way as well. And change is a fearful thing. The problem with this is that fear and fear of church growth in particular will blind us to God's work. It makes it so that we simply do not see what God is actually doing. These people couldn't see what God was doing in Saul's life. Why? Because they're afraid. And listen, I don't, I don't, I mean, I understand why they're afraid. I'd be nervous too, right? The guy was the church's number one enemy. 
If you're afraid, you begin to miss God's work or you begin to doubt God's work. And if you doubt God's work, then you are going to miss out. You're simply going to miss what God is doing or can do. And so what all churches need to do, what we need to do, is we need to recognize the fears when they arise for what they are, a challenge to church growth. We need to deal with those fears just as the church in Jerusalem does. They start off on the wrong foot with Saul. It's understandable, right? It's not the right response, but it's understandable, right? We can, we're sympathetic, right? We're not judgy. I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like, I might, I might respond that way too. But things ultimately are corrected. So first principle, church growth is challenged by fear. That's normal. Number two, church growth is managed by faith. We see this in verse 27, right? At least principally. So they're, they're, they're nervous about Saul. They don't believe he's a disciple, verse 27. But Barnabas... Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas speaks up for Saul. Now, if you don't know who Barnabas is, Barnabas is an associate of the apostles. He's well known and we're going to see him again and again and again in the book of Acts. Barnabas's name means son of encouragement. Right? He is the encourager. He has this prophetic voice. He knows the story of Saul and he has faith. He believes it. You know, he believes it. Maybe it's because he knows his own conversion story, right? Maybe that's what it is. We don't know. But he believes that what happened to Saul is real, genuine, authentic, and it is the work of God. So he defends Saul, defends him. He's like, no, 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 I got this. Let's go to the apostles. Like, everybody's talking. Let's just go to the apostles. Let's go to the people that have authority. And I want to present your case. I want them to hear it from me. They know me. They don't know you, only by reputation, but they know me. So let me go ahead and do this. And by the way, what Barnabas is doing here is he is being faithful to the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's Exodus 20, 16. And we usually think like, well, that's just about not lying, right? It's not just don't lie. It's also stand up for the truth. And when a brother or a sister or anybody is being lied about or misrepresented, you stand with them and don't allow them to be misrepresented. You stop false witnesses. So that's what he's doing. And he testifies before the apostles. He gets before them and he tells them the story, the story that they've already heard for sure, but now it's coming from somebody that they respect, somebody that they know. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, says, I believe. When everybody else right now is not believing or they are slow to believe, I believe. See, church growth is always going to face challenges. Growing churches are always going to face discomfort, growing pains, uncertainty, trial and error, but what manages it is faith, right? We tend to think, well, what manages church growth are programs, right, and, and uh, consultants. That's what manages church growth. And there's a place for that kind of a thing, I suppose, but really what manages church growth is faith, trust and dependence upon God and what he does, his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. We actually believe that he is still at work in people. I mean, if you're a Christian, then you believe that God did something miraculous, supernatural in you. He changed your heart. 
Every Christian knows this, right? Like, I went from not believing to believing. I have a faith that didn't just come from me. God had to do something inside of me. He raised me up spiritually. He gave me a new attitude, a new disposition. And now I struggle and fight against the sin in my heart instead of just going along with it because it feels good. I am different and am increasingly becoming different. You believe that God did something in you. But do you believe that God is doing something and someone else, is he still active? See, church growth is weird, uncomfortable. It's messy even, but it's managed by faith where we trust that God is doing what he said he would do, that Jesus is reigning, right? That Jesus is actually doing what he said he would do. I will build my church. That's what he said he would do. So church growth is challenged by fear. It is managed by faith. Number three, church growth is strengthened by faithfulness. It's strengthened by faithfulness. You see, we we know that the church began to listen to Barnabas because after this, we see what Paul or Saul is doing in verses 28 through 30. So he, Saul, went in and out among them, that is among the Christians. He was there, present, participating. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. There's a lot happening here in those few verses. But what's happening is Saul is doing what Saul was called to do. Jesus converted him and then called him to be this preacher, this apostle, he would go on to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in particular. The church slowly accepted Saul's calling. They began to understand it. it said, we understand that Saul was here for about 15 days. And as he's there, what's, what is he doing? He's preaching Jesus. He is preaching the lordship of Christ when he sought the destruction of the church of Christ not very long ago. So he's preaching. He's doing what he's called to do. And the people are allowing it. They're bringing him in. But Saul is focused. He's focusing on the Hellenists, right? So the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. We've seen this in the book of Acts. You have, you have the Jewish people, right? The Hebrew-speaking Jews. Uh, then you have the Hellenists. These are the Greek-speaking Jews. And these are the Jews that had been outside of the, the Israel, right, the land, for uh, generations perhaps, and they, they speak a different language. They have a different cultural experience in, in, a, in a different land. And now they've come back to Jerusalem speaking Greek, not knowing much Hebrew, uh, but they're still Jews. They, they believe in Yahweh and they read the scriptures, but the scriptures that they read are translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint so that they can understand the scriptures. And Saul begins to focus in on the Hellenists. And as he's doing this, there's a lot of arguing. And we see this happening with Saul early on. Saul is preaching. He's preaching boldly. We know he's highly educated. He's very smart. He's very tenacious. And wherever he goes and wherever he preaches, people get really uh, annoyed. (laughs) They don't like it. They can't can't defeat him, right? They, they, They can't beat him in his understanding of Scripture because that's what he's unpacking for them again and again. And so not only is Saul doing what he's called to do in preaching and teaching and debating and reasoning with the Hellenists, 
Paul also suffered what he is called to suffer. Because it's not just that, oh, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We can debate how to properly interpret that so that it is true and how in the face of it, it sounds rather off if you're reading the scripture. Because if, uh, if I were to say that to Saul, maybe Saul would say, that sounds pretty good, but so far it seems like God loves me and has a really painful plan for my life. Right? It, it, because Saul suffers again and again like the church typically does in the book of Acts. Saul suffered what he was called to suffer for a second time now. As he is annoying people and stirring people up, he's causing controversy in his preaching, the Hellenists hated it and they were seeking to kill him. That's the second time. It's the second time people were plotting to kill him as he begins to preach. They can't win the argument, so they want to defeat the man. He is now, once again, the subject of plots for his death. When not too long ago, he was the one in charge of death squads that were seeking out Christians. And he's going to have to run. He's going to have to hide. Because if he doesn't, he's dead. So Saul did what he was called to do, and he suffered what he was called to suffer. And the church, the church does what it's called to do. I love this because the church that was like, I don't know about this Saul guy, I don't buy it. I don't, buy, I don't trust him. He's shifty. He got the shifty eyes. He used to come after us all the time. I don't like how he smells, whatever. They all have, re- people always have reasons. Like, there's things about him I don't like. And now he wants to be with us. But here they are at this point. He's been there for 15 days. They've heard Barnabas. They've seen the fruit in Paul's life and they get on board. The church does what they're called to do and they protect Saul. They've got his back. Like, let's get out of here. Before, what did they do in Damascus? They put him in a basket and they lowered him over the the wall in the city so he could get out of there. Now they hide him. I don't know if they put him in the trunk, whatever they had to do, but they got him out of there and they went to Caesarea because there he could get on a ship and go back home to Tarsus. Going to get out of Dodge altogether, get out of the heat. This is what the church does, what it's called to do, which is make disciples. That's what we're called to do. The church isn't called primarily to do a hundred different things. The church is called primarily to focus on one thing. Now, it's not all we do. It's not all we focus on. But our primary focus, our primary calling is to make disciples, right? To preach the gospel, to see people come to faith in Christ, and then to teach them all of the things that Jesus taught us, to teach them, teach them all of the things that Scripture says that they might be full, mature followers of the Savior. That's our primary responsibility. And here they are doing it by protecting Saul, discipling him, and ensuring that he will disciple others. In fact, when Saul goes to uh, Tarsus, he's going to be there for years. He's going to land in Tarsus, and he's going to stay there for about four years before he heads out again. And while he's there, he's being prepared, he's being trained, he's being taught, he is maturing in his faith, he's learning how to do what he's been called to do better and better. He needs time, right? He's already been immediately in the spotlight, getting lots of attention and lots of heat. And now 
It's time to hide. In fact, scholars call it this, the, call it this, the, the, the hidden years of Saul. The hidden years when he's hiding, when he's quiet, when we don't see a lot. Now he's preaching, he's doing stuff during this time, but he's very low key compared to what he's been doing. George Whitfield was, uh, was, was a great evangelist in the 18th century and one of the primary figures in what's called the Great Awakening when mass conversions swept across the East Coast on this continent. And so Whitfield comes here from London, young dude like Saul. Young dude comes here, is preaching, and thousands of people come to hear him preach. But before he gets here, who knows? He doesn't know how it's going to turn out. He leaves London where he had a big, uh, like, exploding new preaching ministry. He leaves there to come to America. And on the ship, it's a long journey, and he is now catechizing children spanking children. There's accounts. I read his journals and I had to spank a kid today. He's being very disrespectful. His mother thanked me, that kind of stuff. So now he's like, uh, he's like a babysitter, you know? And so he's, it, but he says this thing in his journal. He writes this thing down and he says, we have to be as willing to hide ourselves when God calls us to hide ourselves as we are to stand in the spotlight, essentially, when God calls us to do that. And this is what Saul does. Saul basically sort of fades away for four years in Tarsus. And we're going to come back to Saul. We're going to see what happens there. But we see that this church is fulfilling its mission. And in this way, by way of its faithfulness, church growth is actually strengthened. Church growth is strengthened by faithfulness. In other, in other words, it's, it's very possible, and it oftentimes happens when, that when churches are experiencing explosive growth or, or, or any kind of growth, I guess, it's not uncommon for churches to lose their focus, to lose their faithfulness to their primary calling and to begin to focus on other things, either to maintain or appease the growing crowds or to attract increasing numbers. But it's faithfulness that strengthens church growth because church growth of, of, of the numerical kind that most people are focused on it's a, it's a delicate thing. It can fade away as quickly as it can happen. It's faithfulness that strengthens it and ultimately preserves it. So church growth is challenged by fear. It is managed by faith. It is strengthened by faithfulness. And number four, church growth results in fruitfulness. Church growth, real church growth, not just numerical growth. Any smart person who knows how to manage people and put on a show can attract large numbers of people together on a Sunday morning. But church growth, meaning this spiritual development and expanse of the local church by way of conversion and edification, that results in fruitfulness. And we see it in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What a, what a beautiful five-point description of what a, a healthy church should look like. The church experiencing growth, right? And if you've been reading the book of Acts, you see like, oh, well, 3,000 were added to the church today, right? Like it, it's experiencing a lot of growth. But here we see that there's, there's peace and edification and, and, and all of these, these things happening to the church. It's not a numbers game. It's real spiritual growth. We read that there was peace. In other words, there was unity among the Christians. 
It doesn't mean that they all agreed on everything. They certainly didn't. And we're going to read about some fights in the book of Acts when Christians are at odds with each other. But it means that despite our disagreements, we can still be at peace in our local churches and between local churches. Presbyterians baptize infants when they are a part of a, of, of a household of faith. We are Baptists. We don't do that. We only baptize people who profess faith in Christ. And there are all kinds of theological reasons for our disagreements. But we look at our brothers and sisters who are Presbyterians and we go, we love you. We got your back. You got our back. We still partner together for the preaching of the gospel, though we gather in different buildings and we, we have differences of opinion. We can still be at peace with, with each other. We don't have to be targeting each other and hating. There was peace and unity in the church as the church grows. Consider that. It's, it's, it's hard to have peace and unity in a church as it's growing, as it's changing, unless the change is deeper than numbers. So there's peace and unity. There's also edification, right? It says in 31 that the church was being built up, right? That is to be edified. That is to be strengthened. It means that the members of the church were growing in their understanding of God. That's theology. That's doctrine. They were, being, they were becoming better theologians, right? In their understanding of God, in their experience of God, in their teaching and expression of God. They were being built up in their faith, so their faith goes from small faith to bigger faith over a period of time, right? It becomes stronger, and of course, there are dips and struggles that we all face. Sometimes those, those dips are, are valleys, and they're, they're quite long, but ultimately, the church is built up over time. We are strengthened. We are becoming the people we're supposed to be through the means of grace that God has given us. There's peace and unity. There's edification. There's the fear of the Lord, healthy church growth brings about a healthy fear of God. Now, if, you, if you're not familiar with the term, it doesn't mean that you are afraid of God, right? The, the New Testament in particular is very, very clear on this, right? That true love casts out all fear. We are not afraid of God because we have been reconciled to God through Christ. To fear God means to have awe and respect for God. It means to understand that he could destroy us justly for our sins, but yet he extends mercy and kindness to us and receives us. It's to honor him. It's to love him. It's to obey him, the fear of the Lord. It means you count God for who he is, the living God who created all things, including you and the one to whom we are responsible. There is a real fear of the Lord. It means that, that it's not a religious game. When people fear the Lord, it means they're not just going to church because it's what you're supposed to do. That they're not just externally religious, but that they're internally religious. So there's peace and unity, there's edification, there's the fear of God, and there's the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Why they need comfort? If they're all unified, if everything is hunky-dory, what kind of comfort do they need? They need comfort because they live the same kind of lives that we, that we live. They're fraught with pain and difficulty and sadness, challenges. While there may be great peace in the church, and there should be, in the world we will have what Jesus says, tribulation. We suffer. We get sick. We lose. We get hate. We're persecuted. There are a myriad of ways in which we are hurt and in the church, the Holy Spirit comforts those who are hurting. And by the way, if the church is experiencing growth, there's growing pains, we need comfort there as well. And 
Fifthly here, there is numerical growth, right? It multiplied. In all of this, the church is multiplying, which means that they're stealing all the good Christians from other local churches to make their church bigger. That's what, it doesn't mean that. It means that people are trusting in Jesus. Now, it's what, it's what pastors like to call transfer growth because it sounds better than stealing. Transfer growth. It's, it's when, oh, the people from another church are going to start coming to your church. Now, in a sense, of course, that's normal, right? Sometimes you realize, like, I don't fit at this church because I have differences theologically or maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a, a philosophical difference or maybe, maybe you're at a church that's bad and hurtful and they've done damage to you, right? That, that's good to leave that church in that case, right? Um, Sometimes you move, you relocate, you got to find a new church. That's, that's normal. Sometimes you transfer, and that's good. We, we've sent people out of here. People have said, you know what? I'm just not vibing here anymore. It's not my thing. I'm gonna, I think I want to go somewhere else. And we're like, oh, man, we love you. But like, all right, like that's, that's cool. Like, what could we, let us know if we did anything wrong. Kind of talk it out. We bless people as they go. That's okay. But the idea that, you know, you want to try to grab as many people from as many other churches as you can to make your church big is just not the kind of growth we see in Scripture. What we should be hungry for, what we should be working toward is conversion growth, not transfer growth. When you see in the book of Acts, the church is multiplying, it means that more disciples are being made, more Christians are being created by the Spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel, which happens by all of the people in various ways. You know, how, how do you know if you're seeing conversions? Well, how many baptisms are happening, right? For Baptists, that's usually a good measure. And I'll tell you, I know that we, the, the, the elders and the deacons in, in particular, but I know that so many in the church, we are hungry for people to come to know Jesus. We want to see more conversions. We want to see more people baptized, yes. We don't want to manipulate people into it. We don't want to trick them into it but we want them to have a real encounter with Jesus and to be changed. That's what we want. The question is, if we really want it, are we willing to work towards it? Yes, ultimately it's God's work. We've spent a lot of time explaining that, but we play a role in preaching this gospel. Peace, edification, the fear of God, comfort, and numerical growth, this is how you measure the health of your church growth. Not by numbers. It's much more than that. Because church growth, ultimately, the kind of growth we're talking about is evidence of Jesus' reign. Jesus, you know, why did Jesus, why did Jesus come? Why did the Son of God take on human flesh? Why was he born of a virgin? Why? Well, we think, like, well, to save people. Yes, okay, to save us from sin, from death, from hell. He lived a righteous life that we have not lived. He is the perfect man as the God-man. He died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven. He suffered the punishment that's due sinners. So there's that, okay. And he rose from the dead, victory over death, guaranteeing eternity for us. Oh, this is great. And now he reigns from heaven. So why did he do all of that? To purchase a people for his own possession with his blood. A people. To purchase for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. To purchase a people, that means to make a people, not individuals that are all doing their own thing. He purchased with his blood the church. We are made to be a part of the church. 
See, church growth is a demonstration that Jesus is reigning, that Jesus builds his church. That's what he said, right? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing can stop what I'm doing. When you see the church growing in wisdom, in faith, in godliness, in number, it's evidence that that Jesus is reigning. He is still active. He is still leading us today. We are not calling the shots here. Jesus calls the shots. He's the one that empowers. He's the one that provides the fruit. We don't need to be afraid of church growth, but we will be. Before COVID, we got up to just over 300 people, right? Which is a smaller, mid-sized church in America. And then uh, during COVID, uh, we got down to 170. And we've been growing a little bit again. We're back up to 200, right? And, 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 and just over 200. And when you're doing that, it's awkward, uncomfortable. You experience growing pains. Churches are supposed to grow. At times, we're going to be uncomfortable. At times, we're going to be really excited. It can be painful, challenging. It can be satisfying. But in all of it, we should be for church growth, not for the sake of church growth, but for the glory of Jesus as evidence of his reign and for the good of our neighbors who are hearing the gospel and being changed themselves. It is evident as we grow that God is with us. For this, we should be grateful and happy and hopeful. Jesus does reign. He reigns in the heart of every believer. He reigns in his church. He reigns in this world. And we see it most clearly in the church that he purchased with his blood. If you are not a believer in Christ, I want to encourage you, consider your sin and your need for a savior. Like really think about it. I remember what it was like to think about that quite a bit before I trusted. And then consider Jesus, who is the answer for our sin problem and offers all who are willing to come to him life and redemption and purpose and change by bringing us back to our maker. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would bear fruit in our lives as we seek to know you and make you known. Lord, we want to grow. We want to grow spiritually in wisdom and faith and knowledge. We want to grow in godliness, in discipline. Lord, we want to grow in numbers because we want to see more people trust in your son. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the desire of our hearts as they reflect your heart. In Christ's name we pray, amen.